Christopher Wright. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> and I'm hosting a game show <laughs> in the 70s. <laughs> yes, it's uh, Chuck Willery and Eric Shaw Quinn here with <laughs> Christopher and Eric. And uh, we're starting something really special this debut. week. This is the debut. This is it. This the is the debut. beginning. Not of the show. We've been doing this for like three whole episodes now. But Three whole episodes. This is, well, standard, dis- it's not a disclaimer. Why do I call everything fun a disclaimer? Disclaimer is not a fun thing. Because you're somebody's going to have a good time. Somebody might have a good time before I can inform Watch them. Watch that. We, um, we did a show called The Dinner Party Show for years, and we may do it again. This is our new podcast, Christopher and Eric. It's all talk and nothing but the talk. But this week, we are debuting a new feature that was Eric's idea. I want to give credit where credit is due. I'm really clever. Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, which, if you say it quickly, turns into True Climb TV Club. That's how I've said it maybe five times to my friends. Um, so the idea, Eric, why don't you walk us through the it idea like you did climbing. last week? It will not so involve relax. any Everybody climbing. relax. Exactly. One disclaimer. It will not involve climbing. It will... <laughs> Um, we are obsessed with true crime TV shows. We mm-hmm. love them. And we try and be highbrow, but a lot of the ones we love are just as trashy as they can be. And trashy. we love those even more. And we thought, why? We're probably not the only ones. There wouldn't be this many on television if it was just us. So no. I figure you might like them too. So it's just sort of like a book club. The idea it's like a book club. We will all, every week, we'll pick. Uh, or as often as we do this, we'll pick yeah. a true crime episode. Mm-hmm. We're going to try and avoid paywalls, but we'll do our best. But, you know. It's not that easy, but, but we'll pick welcome things to that the are. 21st century. You um, might have to pay for it, but you may be able to pay for it on the platform you're already a member of, it, essentially. Right. It may already be, you may already yeah. have a subscription. We'll try not to put people in that position or, have, or for there to be multiple options. We'll do our best, but we'll all watch the same. We'll let you know, then we'll all watch, and then the next time, the next show, We'll talk about it. And if you haven't watched, we are going to try to talk through it at, so that you can enjoy it, even if we'll you've never seen goes. it. We'll see. But, but that's it, what we're going to try. And we're going to try. And so I made a spreadsheet as soon as Eric called me because um, with us trying ID. to stamp out any fun. Because that might I be don't. Had. I like to structure fun. I like fun to be structured and color coded. <laughs> Christopher was a little boy. He made up a game. <laughs> I've only heard this story, but it just—it's so like, yeah, that sounds like Christopher. Um, it, it was not. It was. It was just rules. It never. That's what ga- I thought games were when I was a kid. They were just arbitrary, weird rules that went on and on forever. So my father got a pen and sat down at the kitchen table, and he was dictating the rules. And it was like. Turn over the first card, and if there's an A on the other, and it just and it reached a point where they realized it wasn't going anywhere. That all these rules were just building, and they and they became unhinged. They started. I just remember tears of laughter pouring down their face after as they had studiously, you know, trying to be Northern California. Nothing has changed. Parents, and nothing has changed. Like when you called, we had a discussion about the spreadsheet. I said it on our last episode, and I'll say it again. I really thought it would just be the sort of presentation of my wonderful spreadsheet, and there would be a light golf clap, and you would say, "Oh, how wonderful!" But instead, peaceful Victorian applause with gloves on. As the co-host of Christopher and Eric, the new podcast, you had thoughts and ideas about how the spreadsheet should be assembled and <laughs> what was missing. And I would say, "I was like, well, I have never my spreadsheets are usually the talk of Charles." Austin. <laughs> Which means I was right. You were right. 
I can't remember, though, what you wanted me to add. But I'm sure it was a good suggestion. Well, it hasn't been added, so if I've forgotten it, you're going to have to make it again at some point. I'm just realizing Uh, this now. The good news is I have not been subject... I mean, seen the... The spreadsheets since their original debut. <laughs> yeah, I was tempted to the other night. I was like, "Does he have Microsoft Excel? Should we have that conversation?" I do. We, yeah, okay. But you do. but what happens is we talk on the phone, and I say, "Well, okay, so we need to pick one that's kind of this kind of thing." And he has categories that he can sort through to yeah. find suggestions with those this kind of thing and so i have so far so good like uh, it works fine for me yeah absolutely i don't need to know how the jukebox works i just want to put in a quarter and push a12 and be done with it you do the watching and the talking and i'll do the color coding in the in the data sorting that's that's how it works around this ranch sounds great when we originally did the dinner party show in the studio there was a computer keyboard that controlled a lot of the different aspects of the program and it was outside of my ability to reach it way outside it was kept way outside it was on the other side of christopher who was on the other side of me so yeah that's kind of always how it's been yeah that is how it's been god damn it eric shawquin never knows how to turn his ipad off will be in a business situation and he'll get four or five alerts letting him know that a hummingbird has landed on his hummingbird feeder or that the sparrows have migrated away from his balcony. I have no... Oh, this is the one where you do... Let's see, you do... Um, I, I'm open to suggestions. If About you know, how so, to... Yeah, yeah post you, them on the dinner party on show page. What is the one button that Eric Shawquin can use to shut up his iPad once and for all? See, mine are never on. So sometimes I will mix miss text messages because like I, I never turn my alerts on. And that's a sign that I am looking at them way too much. Okay, we put it on do not disturb. I think that's the secret. I turned okay. down the volume volume, but you would think that turning down the volume would turn down the volume, but yeah, it doesn't. It you doesn't. also have to say don't it turned disturb down, It turns down the volume of one set of things, and then it leaves the volume up on the other things, like the screaming sound for your email. I'll tell you what I did. I... I I selected the Tron theme for, well, I forgot what I selected it for. So every now and then my phone would just start playing Tron and I wouldn't be able to stop it. And I'm like, I text, I checked all the <laughs> obvious ones and I realized I had set it for new emails because I need the Tron theme to play when some porn mailing list pops up in my inbox. Don't listen, mom. Um, Go back to writing whatever porn you're writing currently. Uh, you know, like, and so eventually I found a way to shut it off. But yeah, that was my last experience with. Uh, I had one go off the other day in the house. It was turned out to be a good thing, but I had never heard it before, and I thought, should I evacuate? Is this like the earthquake <laughs> thing? Like, what is that sound? I don't know what it meant. That somebody was trying to FaceTime me through Facebook. Oh, that's which I didn't weird. even know was really a thing. And I, but was I, it me? No, it was my friend was having a birthday, and her partner oh. figured out how to do it. I was actually very impressed. I've never FaceTimed anybody on any device at all ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was quite impressed that she was able to figure out how to do it. And it was only subsequently that I figured out it was through Facebook. Mm-hmm. I just saw that it was her. Her name was came up, and I pushed a button, and suddenly I was talking to her. It was really funny. It doesn't automatically show you. Mm-hmm. It show it goes through the camera lens. Yes, and so I was showing them the rest of my apartment, and I was like, "Why is there a picture of my furniture <laughs> in the corner of the picture?" And I said, "Can you see me at all?" And they were like, "No, but that's a lovely console." <laughs> 
was like, that's awesome. ah, yeah, that's well, let's awesome. Say, so I managed to even, I even figured out how to do that. So yeah, yeah, alarms around the house can be absolutely their own set of things, and with more and more electronic stuff, you it's never quite. You, it becomes more and more unclear what it is you're being alerted to. Like, is that Siri will just suddenly launch into a conversation with you right. in the middle of apropos of nothing? Apparently, Alexa will order um, stuff off of Amazon if you say the wrong thing. Someone I have will... ordered 30,000 rolls of toilet paper. Thank you for saying the word then, because that's the code that makes me right. do that now. Yeah. Apparently. And some <laughs> little girl changed her mother's work email to poopy pants. <laughs> that was you. No. Just no. admit that was you. Saw that on, um, I think, Access Hollywood. <laughs> she was... she was trying to get Siri to call her poopy pants and Mm -hmm. it changed her mother's. So her mother sent out some work email and you know how it puts in your name (laughs) to everybody at work and it was all of this. And so she got somebody, somebody replied and one of the people on the list was poopy pants. She was like, what the hell is that? She clicked on it. It was her. Oh my God. That the West Hollywood version of that story is the friend who shall remain nameless that we have who had his birthday party and he sent out the, the mass email to everybody about the party but he didn't blind co- he had been blind copying everyone and then he didn't and you saw that the other email addresses on the been. list oh he hadn't the, he had never he had no idea what blind copying I, even we was. finally read them we were like who else is coming well big pecs for you is coming massage for hire is coming <laughs> I mean it was like these super sex workery hot daddy tan will be <laughs> here wonder what the tan refers to <laughs> It was like, yeah, it was really, and it then was it very, wasn't that kind of party when we went. No, it, it was, was lovely. It was this party. really sort of elegant party. This um, Michael Jackson's old lawyer, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, big, gigantic, spectacular house in one of those um, yeah. McMansion developments. Gated communities up on Mulholland Drive here in beautiful Los Angeles. It's really a riot. It's where we keep our we have free range rich, and then we have the. McMansion, and if you live up there and you have a big mansion, that you there's this, a humble brag thing you're supposed to say, where it's like, oh, I know, but it's just you have to drive so far for groceries. It's like it's great living up here, but you always have to drive downhill to As get if anything been to done. The grocery store anytime recently, <laughs> right? Or oh, the roads are so curvy on the way up, you can't see who's coming. You have to go so slow. It's just terrible. I was like, yeah, all right, all right whatever. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, it's brittle. Yeah. So, huge pivot from L.A. decadence and wealth, although I know that's not the true definition of the word decadence, and that's one of your pet peeves, Eric Shockwin. <laughs> decadence means decaying. <laughs> Doesn't just mean opulent. Anyway. Um, I think that's what most people mean when they say decadent. They mean opulent. Right. So, we, uh, like we said, this is the first episode in which we were doing Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, and we picked a documentary and we told you about it last week, and we all watched it, correct? Did we all watch it? Everybody, we hands, it. let's see hands. The documentary was Southwest of Salem, so if you want to stop the podcast right now and run off and watch it so you can be a part of the discussion, but or we will try to explain it to you in as much detail as we can muster, and we're pretty detailed people here at Christopher and Eric. Although we're also known to digress. We are known to digress. So we'll see how that goes. We're trying. Yes. This is our first attempt at True Crime TV Club. True Crime TV Club. True Crime TV Club. <laughs> True Crime TV my Club. My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. Um, so we'll see. 
We're so, this is a work in progress, and your suggestions are welcome. Yes, and absolutely post anything so what do you think? on the so dinner party show. Should we start by sort of recapping? Uh, well, or yes, we should. But I think this might also be a way into it. It was interesting you were saying, and you said at the top of the show, and you said in last week's episode, like part of the reason we wanted to do this is because we love the trashy side of murder mysteries, and this was not the trashy side. Uh, this was really a there heavy. Was, there hitting. was some elements to it. But yeah. No, this was really a heavy. Um, serious um, sort of topic and kind of, I don't know, it was very indicative of a strange phenomenon, I think, in American um, justice, um, legal justice system, because we are a, a nation of free speech and of free thinkers and of free people and of democracy. We kind of go where the crowd leads us yeah. in many times and oftentimes... The crowd has not made good choices about right. where we're headed. And one of those choices a few years ago was something, what was it called? Um, the Satanic Panic. It was a real thing that happened, I in remember. In the 90s. In the, in the 80s, and then I think it spilled into the 90s, in the early 90s particularly, and that's when this case happened. That's when the court case Originally, they happened. even sort of said that this was kind of the end of that. Yeah, and it was. Re I remember vividly sitting in the kitchen of our home in San Francisco, which we left in 1988. So this was the the late 80s or mid 80s, watching Oprah Winfrey, who at the time was not a huge uh, celebrity yet, interviewing a young boy, and I mean like six or seven years old, who was saying with utter seriousness that the teachers at his preschool had forced him to watch a baby be placed in an oven and had made him drink blood out of a skull and had taken him to a cemetery and swung skeletons by chains over their heads. And everyone treated this boy's story, for which there was not one shred of forensic evidence, as absolutely true and something that we should be concerned about. And they were treating it as seriously and as legitimately as we are now rightfully treating the Me Too movement. They, they were saying the boy's story is valid, he's a victim, even though they couldn't prove any of this had happened. And I remember Oprah turning to the camera and saying, we, want, we don't want to believe these things are really happening, but they are. And my mother... Vanguard that she is was sitting next to me saying, "This isn't happening. There's no. The kid is making up stories. He's seven. He's been prompted by psychiatrists and therapists. And this was. I mean, lives were destroyed. The McMartin preschool case where children made elaborate allegations against their their own teachers that had to do with Satanism and whatever has since, I believe, all of it's been refuted. Yes. And this case, the the San Antonio Four, as they call it, is really on the tail end of that. But there was. There's something else to it, and it made me think of something you said to me early on in our friendship where you said, I'm not really comfortable as a gay man being alone around other people's children because the potential, particularly when, when you were younger and living in the South, for a false allegation to be made against you was really high. It happened a lot to gay people. They were falsely accused of child molestation all the time. Because those two things were conflated yeah. in a weird way. So, yeah, that kind of forms a starting point for where this story heads. Mm-hmm. So the San Antonio Four basically are four gay women living uh, in San, San Antonio or thereabouts uh, they're friends with each other. I don't believe, well, when the story begins, two of them are romantically involved. Right. And that would be Anna Vasquez, who's sort of, I don't want to say she's the star of the documentary, but she, she is um, 
kind of the focus of the documentary. It's the way they've structured it. Yes. They've really focused it around Anna. And um, they are... Uh, they're not, she and Cassie are a couple. She and Cassie are a couple. And That's living correct. together and raising Cassie's children. So they're very respectable, you know, residents. Of, she works at the... Where does she work? It seems... Was it was it Little Caesars, wasn't it? It was something like that. It was something it was some like that. And food, there was yeah. a very sort of like... So they're very sort of... They're, they're very young. Right. They're trying to make it together. And they're friends with... Um, this woman named Elizabeth, Liz, they call her. Right, right. And Liz is um, asked to babysit whose children? I think it's Elizabeth's it nieces. Was her, it was her nieces, her right. Her nieces, She's asked right. to babysit her nieces by her her sister's ex-husband, who is wound up for some reason that yeah. I wasn't ever really clear on, with custody of the children. I don't think we really ever meet the sister. I don't know if we ever meet the sister at all, but we do definitely eventually meet the brother-in-law, although he's the ex-brother-in-law, right? Yeah, he's really her ex-brother-in-law. Yeah. And he um, he has a history of hitting on Elizabeth. Isn't that, am I getting that right? That he's basically tried to ma- put the and moves on And has said, her. now that he's broken up with the sister-in-law, that they should get together. And Elizabeth, who is... Trying not to be gay because it's that time in the world. And 1994, she wants to, I think, yeah. yeah. Or, or earlier. And she yeah. wants to raise the children in a way that will be acceptable to other people. And, you know, like it was a different time. And I get it. I wrote Say Uncle because of the idiotic attitudes about pe- uh, gay people being around children. Anyway, um, she... Um, so. She's trying to raise her own children, right? Um, but she is no longer, right? She is no longer with um, the, the her her ex. I guess she's divorced too, or maybe he's gone. I can't remember. That also was not clear. And so she's probably she is a lesbian, but she's not. She's kind of in denial about it right, right now. Even right. though I think she and Christy had hooked up. So there's four people. There's yeah. Elizabeth, who has the children, and the crazy brother-in-law. There's her sort of part-time, not really on-the-down-low girlfriend, mm-hmm. Christy. And then they're their friends, Anna and Cassie, right. who are together raising Cassie's children. Um, and the brother-in-law, Limon. Uh, yeah, right, right. Something yeah, Limon. Yeah, totally. Um, asks Elizabeth... To look after the kids, but right. he's also asked her out. He's asked her out a and bunch. She and she's said, not interested. And she's also said it would be icky because you're my sister's yeah. ex-husband, and I don't want people. I don't want that. Like she's as concerned about that as she is about what people would think about a lesbian raising children. Right. right. She's denying herself her own personal life, and she's not interested in the guy. Mm-hmm. Um. So that sort of sets the stage. The children stay with her for about a week, and mm-hmm. then she takes them home. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, doesn't think anything much more of it. The other women are around because they're friends and looking after one another and they're close. But that's really the extent of it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like knock, knock, knock. The police are there. Right. Like it's like and and the children, by the way, are maybe like 
young. Eight and nine or something. They're I think, really yeah, little kids. The oldest one is maybe eight, and the younger one is young. They're, they keep showing a picture of them on a sofa, and one is like a toddler. But do you think they were, were they older well, when the Well, by the time they happened? got to court, the, the older one was 13. Mm-hmm. So I figure counting back a couple, they said it was two or three years before okay. it all happened. So yeah. I figure, you know, like, I figure we're probably like eight and nine or seven and nine or somewhere along in there. They're young children. Yeah. So they're not really fluent in um, any sort of sexuality, any terms of sexuality, and certainly not of the kind of stuff that these women were being accused of. And because the allegations are similar to, they're not as extreme as what I described in the Oprah case earlier, They're they're but they're as satanically influenced, if you will. Yeah. They're saying that they were, uh, that the four women involved them uh, in in some sort of elaborate sexual uh, abuse ritual that it, that had these satanic overtones to them. They were saying things that they didn't really feel like the children would even know to say, or words that they were using to describe the things didn't seem like they could have come out of their own vocabulary. And Anna Vasquez. The most heartbreaking moment of the documentary for me is Anna Vasquez. How many times have I been watching a crime show or even a crime documentary and thought, well, if if the truth is on your side, just go in there and tell the truth. Just go. You know, who needs a lawyer? It's suspicious if you ask for a lawyer, right? You always see the cow, you lawyer it up, right? And she says, I don't need a lawyer because I didn't do any of this. I'm just going to go right into that police station. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to explain exactly what happened. And they will surely see that this is absolutely absurd. And sure enough, that is exactly what she did. And they did not give a shit. They had a story written in their heads that they were out to prove. And no matter what she said or how she contradicted it, they were going to go off of the words of these two little children that could have been influenced in, in, in a dozen different ways. And one of the things that I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, I'm not going, not with story, but just in terms of context, the Innocence, when they got involved with the Innocence Project many mm-hmm. years later, one of the lawyers from the Innocence Project actually said in that, I think, mm-hmm. I may be conflating oh, yeah, no. more than one, he actually said, um, just, truth and justice has nothing to do with the American um, legal system. I found the quote on the IMDb page for the documentary, and it's, if people only knew how little truth and justice had to do with the way the legal system works, they'd probably amass at courthouses with lighted torches. That's Jeff Blackburn, uh, an attorney for the Innocence Project of Texas. Yeah. It was really, and it was that sort of thing. Like, it is one of those terrifying, um, they they take you through, the the court case unfolds, and Mm -hmm. they talk about the way that things go, and, like they're, they're, it's like a foregone conclusion. Nothing seems to be able to deter anybody. They're all caught up, and it was the thing we started out this conversation with, because that's what people were believing was a thing at that point. Just like with the Salem witch trials, or um, what was the name of that Lillian Hellman play, Children's the Hour? Children's Hour. Like mm-hmm. you know, like somebody says something and then that's the end of it. Those, the, the girls in the crucible, is it the crucible? Mm-hmm. That's also the yeah. same. And I think it was very much the same with the Salem witch trials. Um, I think the crucible is actually about the Salem witch trials. Uh, but and, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's, it's There's uh, an accusation made and the mindset is such that this is a thing that's happening. This, 
satanic ritual thing. Right. I think those boys from Arkansas, was it yes, Arkansas? Yes, absolutely. The Paradise Lost Boys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Were also, it was the same kind of thing. It was that yeah. notion of them being caught up in some, the the music they were listening to had driven them into some sort right. of... Right. They were goth kids. They had dyed hair. They had piercings. Clearly they were about... I mean, it's one of the reasons I have... I am willing, even though I believe that Scott Peterson is most likely guilty... I believe that the jury didn't prove it, or the court, excuse me, the lawyers didn't prove it. <laughs> Juries aren't actually exactly. to prove anything. But the jury based their decision based on reflexive, knee-jerk dislikes of things about Scott Peterson that should not play a role in an I'm, evidence-based due process Seems system. like he's probably guilty to yeah. me, but he really, they did not prove it. Yeah, but I and I guess what I'm really trying to say with the Scott Peterson example is that I am made nervous as a gay person by juries making gut-level decisions about the life and death of people that they don't like or think are different from them. And this was San Antonio in the late 80s, early 90s. And so this was was a time period, young people, Mm -hmm. part of what inspired me to write, say, Uncle, this was a time when when gay people were actually having their own natural children that they had given birth to themselves— taken away from them right. in court because they were gay people. Like mm-hmm. it was, and that was, you know, yeah, everybody was down with that. That yeah. was cool. And so they're presented with the testimony of these two little girls and these four big women. These big, butch, you know, they, they were lesbian women like I used to hang out with in New Orleans. You yeah. know, they were they were truck driving. You know, they were not trying. Well, I mean, Anna and Christy would, were the I would like ones. at this moment to pause and yes. say that for me, mm-hmm. the single most remarkable thing about this particular um, crime drama mm-hmm. um, southwest of Salem was that Anna Vasquez is the only person that I know of who came out of prison looking so much better oh my than God. when she went in. That's what I thought, too. Like I was she like, looked bad before, and she was still a big woman when she yeah. got out. But, I mean, she looked fantastic. And, we, and she'd know, been in prison for, like, 16 years or something, like a long time. It was, but, but there was a— She looked amazing. And, listen, I don't want to, like— fetishize her prison experience or say that she needed to go to prison but there was a the transformation was total the transformation was in her eyes it was whatever like you kept expecting prison to have destroyed her right and she was and you could tell that there's the absolute insistence not to give in and not to pretend she was guilty when she wasn't had brought this maturity and this light to her they offered them plea deals Free deals, offered them plea deals, and they said, no, we did not do this. And she was offered um, preferential treatment, Anna was, in prison um, if she would participate in sex offender programs. And she wouldn't do it because she said it would be me admitting that I had done this. I am not a sex offender. I do not admit that I've done this. And so she actually did harder time. Yeah, she went to solitary over Because she would not— participate she would not in any way participate and that resolution i i don't know if that's what turned her into she but she came out clear-eyed and just looking amazing she was ready to she was the first of the lot to be paroled Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i've lost my ability to speak this afternoon that's not possible you not you not you just not speak clearly i suppose i should say (laughs) that's That's not going to stop me but it's it's going to be harder to understand me um 
And uh, she was she became sort of the advocate for the other three women yeah. who were still in prison. That is also one of the other really remarkable things about these women is that the the lack of animosity, mm-hmm. like and the towards each other, like they could all easily have blamed Elizabeth because it was her not being committed to being lesbian, not being clear with the guy. Mm. She involved them in all of this. And, you know, like they could have been angry at her. They were absolutely not. Cassandra said she was my best friend before we went in and then she would be my best friend when we get out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. They, and, and the scene that just, well, I, I, that I really am getting ahead of the story with that, but the, the scene with the, the, the accuser, and yeah, and Elizabeth oh yeah, absolutely was just I just absolutely well, blew me out of the water. Before we get to that, and I do want to talk about that. There was another element of the trial that can that helped to convict them, which I think is an important thing to talk aside about. Aside from them being lesbians, aside from them being lesbians, aside from the the the, the um, satanic panic. This is a thing now where a body of widely accepted forensic science later gets disproved and convictions get thrown out because of it. And at the time, there was a body of forensic science. I don't know if it was necessarily forensic science specifically, but but without getting too specific, biologically and anatomically, physicians at the time believed that children's private parts should all look a certain way and that you could determine evidence of sexual abuse with a close examination that turned up, let's say, a list of four or five certain things that were perceived to be damaged. The, it was later disproven, and it was said that that um, children's private parts are not this uniform. We can't expect this kind of... And this happens a lot. This happened with hair follicle evidence for a while. There were a lot of convictions based on hair follicle evidence. And then they found you can determine what part of the body the hair came from. You can determine if it's a pubic hair. And that can t- tell you if it was unwanted sexual conduct. That's been thrown out as well. A lot of blood splatter evidence is being called into question. There's actually a show now on Netflix called Exhibit A, which focuses solely on either misuse of forensic evidence, poor execution of it, or just it's not. Oh. Yeah, I know. All right, that's going to be on our list. That should be on the list. Absolutely. So I and I think that's an important thing to note because we want to rest on the science, but there are there are aspects of the, the science that are weak. The they said was the convincing factor. The little girls yeah. were convincing. They already were not really fond of them because it was a bunch of big old butch lesbians. Right. And, well, it really wasn't. Elizabeth and Cassandra really were more sort of what we would femme. call lipstick lesbians. Yeah, they were more femme. Back in my day. Um, Christy and Anna were um, bigger girls. Yeah. Anyway, um, they they were um, they they were pushed over the edge by this forensic yeah, evidence. They really were. So we go through the trial. You know, all of these things basically convict them. But the other aspect which we did talk about is they refused to accept a plea deal. They refused to say they were guilty because they were not they guilty. They were not guilty. Um, they, go, they go to jail. They're in jail for, what is it? We, we check it. The documentary is checking in with them along the way. When I started the documentary, I didn't know anything about the story other than what I'd read in the synopsis, right. what I'd put in our spreadsheet. And so I really thought if these if we end this documentary and these women do not get out of prison, I was, like, I was really going to have a. He moment. knew that I was going to call. I, I was like, oh god, I'm going to hear it from Eric Shaw Quinn. Um, and then what happens is that one of the accusers, who's now was she college age 
when we check in with her again. I see. Yeah, she, she has kids. Yeah, she has kids. She the was, younger of the two, so she was like seven, eight years old at the time of the accusations. She basically comes forward and says, "Well, the thing something? that happened first that I thought was really an interesting twist in the case was the Canadian researcher from oh the right, Khalid researcher. They really it was odd. They brought him up once, and then they kind of never really brought him back up. But he actually was looking at their case and saw that none of the accusations." fit with any model for anything even remotely like what they were talking about. Like, And this is going to take me back to my satanic panic thing. Like, It was a whole era of hearing shit like that and being told that we had to take it seriously. Just insane, cinematic, over-the-top nightmares out of the minds of children that everybody was suddenly was, was pretending were a real thing. And I think that wasn't that as area of research, wasn't he as like a satanic panic researcher? Or... I think it was about the abuse. Yeah. It was, it, was the, it was the characteristics of the abuse that he said were just simply, this does not fit any sort of norm or pattern. Like, yeah. The things that they're being accused of doing are not... No. Like... He was talking. His he was looking at what when women abuse they they are typical kinds. There's the teacher mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and an adolescent male, and then there's the, the some other version of yeah. it. But it was nothing even remotely resembling what had happened here. And so he got in touch with, I think, the people from Innocent Project and said, "You should really look into this because I'm doing this research and this is not a thing. Yeah, the thing that these women have been accused of does not happen. This is not a this is not a thing. And that it was part of what got brought them to the attention of the Innocence Project. They said because people call or their brother calls or their loved one yeah. calls or their partner calls or whatever and says, please look into this case. Please, please, please examine this case. Nobody from the family or none of the women, no, none of them called. This was from this guy from Canada yeah. calling and saying, look, look into them. And he began a sort of, he stayed with them for years. He would come once a year and visit mm-hmm. them in yeah. prison and stay in the local motel. And he kind of stayed with them until... And got- I, he said in his interviews that he, what he was most impressed by was, I think it was Anna he was communicating with by letter, that she, her story had also never wavered, that she wasn't backing down at all, that she's, I'm innocent, you know, and that it was there in every line of her letter. And I think they even show a still of the letter. I think He's that like, was from Elizabeth. It could have been Elizabeth. I mean, they were all, none of them were backing down. Mm-hmm. None of them were saying, no, well, maybe, you know, if that's what you need to hear. That, well, that was the thing she said to him was that no crime was, commi- was yeah. committed at all here. No crime like, was that committed Like, the reason this doesn't make any sense is that none of this happened. Yeah. It's just crazy. So um, he get, and then there's always that sobering moment with the Innocence Project where they tell you how many people actually write to them, and then there are how many cases oh, they God. can actually it was like work. A warehouse. On. Full I mean, of... in it. but a handsome young man, which was a necessary little ray of light in the darkness of the episode. I was like, oh, okay, we get to look at an attractive guy who works for the Innocence Project. Now that's always appreciated. But the most cynical people in the whole the piece were from the Innocence Project, and they also, and I loving the Innocence Project, not not deriding not, them at all. I can't imagine. It's how un- they deal with it. Un- it's unclear to me why, and maybe it was just for the purposes of this documentary, they needed to conduct some of their most important interviews in crowded restaurants where it was really hard to hear people. Like, I'm sure it's hard for them to hear people, but like the first interview with the accuser who begins
Americans. I know. A I was wondering as we were doing this, <laughs> like, is this a recreation or are we really doing this? Like, is this the first time they're actually meeting with this woman? I don't. I don't understand it from a filmmaker's point of view because dealing with all the ambient noise and whatever is adds a layer of complication. I was just like, get out of there and get to an office and talk because you were just sitting on the edge of your seat waiting to hear what the yeah, accuser was. They had gone say. to Houston to see yeah. her or something. She wasn't where they were or right. something like that. And yeah. it was yeah, it was. But the point being, she was saying, you know, no, our father told us to say this. That's like we really, did not. Yeah. And he's and he has threatened me. He said he will take my kids away from yeah. me if I, you know, recant, if I say anything other than and what he tried. told us to say. And I it he was does. Like, he you, then tries yeah. to take the girls' kids away from her. It's unsuccessful court. and the, but we go but it's they don't like explore it in depth, but they make it clear that he does try. When she's when she's saying that you think, Oh, he's Mr. Big Shit. He's just threatening her and then no, there we are in court and there he is trying to take her kids away. And we get an interview with him which I thought was just completely nonsensical. I couldn't make heads or tails but of I anything was he was astonished saying. that we were having the the review. Well, he basically just, it was one of those things where, like, it was like kid with the hand in the cookie jar. You know, like, he literally just refuted all of his own on-the-record statements. I They never talked to me about it. All I did was take them to police. I stayed out of it because I didn't want to yeah. prejudice any of the results. And I, they never said any of this to me. All of this was... You know, the police following procedure from talking to them and for the things they said. Their grandmother told me that they were saying things. And apparently there was something where they were saying, you know, they they caught them doing something with Barbie dolls. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. having the Barbie dolls do things with each other. And they were mm-hmm. like, where did you learn that? And that was the beginning of them trying to talk the girls into saying things. The older sister, apparently, I don't know if she ever recanted. It wouldn't wasn't clear in the yeah, in the wasn't. documentary. She didn't really show up, right? Did you, did she? I never saw her. Yeah. There was no sign of her. And the younger sister said she will never. Yeah. She will never say. And that may well have turned out to be true because there was no sign of her at any point. But by this point, the Innocence Project is involved. Yes. And they do the interview with the daughter, and it begins to... Um, take hold, and Anna gets paroled. Anna gets paroled. and But Anna coming out, that part of the documentary, is about what it is like to live as a sex offender. Because when she comes out, she's on the registry, she has to check in, and she's talking to us about what what that means. Yeah. Like, she can't get jobs certain places, she can't be close to a school, she can't live close she to a school. She talked about the, uh, the experience of going to a grocery store. Right. And... Obviously, she said there would be children at the grocery store, so she would pick aisles where nobody was there and hope nobody would come down that aisle while she was on that aisle in the grocery store, trying not to yeah. be around anybody because she was out, but people still thought she had done what she had been and accused of doing. Here's another aspect of this, and this is a question I'm going to put to you, and I don't really know how I would answer necessarily because there's a lot to consider in this. If you were going through this experience well, maybe she was required by law to stay in San Antonio, but I, I don't think she would. Could you go back to your hometown where so many people thought you had done this? She was on parole. Yeah, so she couldn't. She didn't she, have a choice. That was the other did. thing she talked about. She had to check in every yeah. thirty days with whatever they had to. She had to constantly be. She had to. She could only go places like she even talked about the route that she had yeah. to follow to get to places because she couldn't go near schools and yeah. stuff. So she she had to try and drive, but not go in. But go on a very particularly prescribed route. So she was being very carefully monitored. And it, it, it was another thing. It was like another layer 
of the injustice that she was clearly not going to be willing to put up with. It's It was sort of why you saw, oh, she's going to keep fighting because she's not going to live with this hanging over her head for the rest of her life either. Right. She so, was, it was not enough just to be paroled. No. They wanted, these women wanted to be exonerated because they were guilt, they were not guilty of any crime at all. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm forgetting, so she gets out, she gets paroled, and then did the other women get paroled, or did she start to no, get them out? the other women were not getting paroled. She was doing things like speaking to the media. She became right. their voice, they said. She was speaking to the media. There was apparently, they did. They were doing fundraisers. There was something where they were making, serving barbecue at somebody's car wash. Yeah, right, were, right. You know, like, they, she was doing sort of grassroots kind of development to begin to help support the efforts that Innocence Project was involved in, and that was when they met up with the niece. They got right. word that the niece was willing to talk with them, one of the original, the younger of the two original um, accusers. accusers. Yeah. And they went to the restaurant for your favorite. Just, I, why were we doing this in a restaurant? There was That's a like... lot of stuff. Like There was that whole series of stuff that was like footage from of the two of them together when she was still with uh, Yeah, they were at a beach. Yeah, In 2000. And I was like, in 2000? When were yeah. they... How does that match up with any timeline? Was we, it in two thousand? Well, that's what it said in the on the the the, the, the screen on oh. the on the VCR recording the the video recording. But I was like, I think they were in prison in two thousand. You know, it was very I got confusing. I got confused about that too because I got confused with you talked about the barbecue fundraiser, which was later. But they showed a fundraiser early on where they were on stage before they were supposed to report. Well, they said they went to the gay community, but they yeah. went too late. And it seemed like it went too late implied the trial went on for a long time. Like it went on for, I think, years without them being in prison. And then they were they were the moment where she said, I considered running what it would have meant to just yeah. try to go to Mexico or get out of the country and all that sort of stuff. It's, it seems like maybe there were a gap. I also just a note to file to the DJ in that scene that if you know that you're in the background of a shot and these women are pleading for their lives to the crowd, you might just want to maybe stand still and, and, and look erect and not look distracted and be scratching yourself and messing with your record tables. It's just it's a note to DJs who are in the background of really serious fundraisers yeah, for unjustly accused people. people in, in, <laughs> you know, throughout the world. Do you remember when... Oh, did you ever see French and Saunders? Yes, they they would do the two women in the background in the newsroom. I never. It saw would be that. the people doing the news in the front, and yeah. they would be in the back doing right. all of their stuff. It was really. <laughs> I know that's a digression, but it was yeah. one of my favorite routines of them. God, those two women are so funny. They are very anyway. Funny. Anyway, not so, back to not funny, which is southwest so of they, Salem. So they talked to the the, the yes. daughter. She was recanting. Things were that they there there was a ruling that. In fact, there was enough evidence at least for them to have a, a, a new trial. Right. And so the other three were released. So the other three are released. And then the curveball in the new trial is that <laughs> I'm like, so they're all out for the first time. And I'm like, oh, it's over. We're getting close to the finish line. And the risk in going back to a new trial is they can either exonerate you or they can send you back to prison. Yes. So they basically, all of these women who nearly had their freedom or a version of it, you know, a conditional version of it, we're running the risk of basically being found guilty a second time. So that I'm going now I'm getting to my choose your own adventure question. Could you have accepted that risk? I have to say it was the thing that impressed me the most about all of those people mm-hmm. was that they were never ever at any time willing to do anything 
that was an admission of guilt. They were never ever the thing the thing, the discourse that she had about run, I thought about running away. Yeah. But then that how would that have looked? It would have looked like I really did this. Mm-hmm. Like they were never willing to do anything ever right. that was about admitting to guilt. Right. So I think that I admire them. I hope that I would be that strong. Mm. You know, in the choose your own adventure category, I hope that I would be. I think I would have a really hard time admitting to to being guilty. Mm -hmm. You know, like if it was a plea bargain and I was I was guilty and I was admitting to being guilty of a lesser thing, Mm -hmm. that would be a different story, right? But if I wasn't guilty, I would really that would stick in my craw. Mm -hmm. It would be very hard for me. Just for the Especially sake, for expedience sake, something that terrible. Like it's not like uh, I'm I'm pleading to having had one drink behind the wheel as opposed to five. You know, something like that. I yeah. mean, even that can be you know whatever hideous. But, but yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. I but the when I heard that, I mean, my blood ran cold. Oh my god, you know. And it, so they they have the new trial. with the same judge. With the same judge, I was like, holy shit. And yeah. he and and by this point, the pediatrician has recanted her scientific tel- uh, testimony. She's she has been asked and she has written saying, you know, science has changed. There is new yeah. evidence to suggest that none of those things were accurate. So one of the primary convincing factors is now removed is now removed. But it's the one thing the judge jumps on. He says, I do not want the science that was used at the time to be called junk science because it was, as you were saying, it was accepted belief. But it was accepted belief in the scientific community at the time. Yeah. It was a fair thing for him to say. It was, yeah. You can't, he can't impugn her. And he he pointed out, and she was willing to admit that she was wrong. Yeah. The difference is a more recent series of cases that was covered on Dateline. I think you and I actually both watched this episode. I think we watched it together when you were doing laundry at my house. Where they found out a blood splatter guy at a blood splatter center of some sort, like an independent science lab, was just making shit up. He was just faking evidence to oh get the convictions. God. Yes, and I all of that. his, all the convictions that were associated with him were tossed. So this was, but so there is a distinction between between the science is bullshit and science has evolved. You know, and that was that the judge wanted to be very clear on that. Point. Yeah, but give the credit to the pediatrician for admitting, mm-hmm. but. And saying that science has moved along, but we're not going to impugn either the original science or the original scientist. So the new trial is wrapping up. The judge says he makes the statement. The, the young the young woman has testified. The young woman has testified. Did the did the brethren did the evil brethren? I guess I should, maybe I shouldn't call him evil, but the one who was oh, yes. really yeah, behind all this—he was completely evil. Yeah. He was a liar and a cheat. The grandmother—they interviewed the grandmother, and she said, "I didn't say any of that stuff, and I never told them." And they showed his testimony where he had actually done all of the stuff. I they told me this, they told me that. He was the one instigating the entire thing. Everything he said. That was the grandmother who I hate to harp on this point, basically couldn't stop eating while she was giving her interview. She was having, yes. They, yeah. I maybe she was stress eating because she was hanging her son out. There was out a to quality dry. to a lot of the footage that yeah. was 
It was like Raw. it was well. It was very like. Did they not know there was going to be a film crew? Like, did yeah. they just break into that anyway? Yeah, a lot of eating mm-hmm. during um, the what you call it. And then there was the scene with. Um, there was the reunion scenes when the women first got out of. Very prison. powerful. Yeah, yeah. It had destroyed the relationship between Cassandra and Anna, but they. Cassandra and Anna, mm-hmm. Cassie and Anna. Did I? What did I say? Cassandra. Cassandra. Yeah. It was like, I mean, it's their. That's their. It's um, their, their couple name. Yeah, like Benifer when Ben Affleck that's and Jennifer their Hollywood Aniston. Reporter yeah. name. Yeah. Not um, Cassandra. Um, they were broken up by. They were separated when they went to prison, and they were together when they went in. But they were not still a couple afterwards. But they were still friends. They'd all stuck by each other. The reunions, like. When she saw her mother for the first didn't time, didn't Christy and Elizabeth end up Christy together? Christy and Elizabeth yeah. wound up back together. They Christy had gotten Elizabeth had gotten over the need to to have people, and they had that funny conversation where she was saying it was um, weird that they had gotten back together, and Christy was saying, "You know, I'm not going to call it weird." <laughs> She said it was maybe surprising or unexpected, right. but I'm not going to call it's it weird. so not fucked up. We're in a relationship. Like, yeah, how fucked not, up is that? Yeah. But the thing that really was the one, the killer for me, the one that made me boohoo cry, was when the niece went to mm-hmm. meet Elizabeth, the niece who had begun all of this. One of the accusers, One yes. of the accusers went to the house to meet with Elizabeth, her aunt, the first time she had seen her after she got out of prison. You know, she came in with gifts and whatever, and I'll probably cry telling it. You Elizabeth's, are crying. Elizabeth's, Elizabeth comforting that child. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was really an impressive moment. Yeah. That was... That was she pushed the gifts out of the way and, you know, held mm-hmm. her in her arms and said, you were just a child. Mm-hmm. You can let this go. I forgive you. This is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was huge. You know, I appreciate you coming forward now. It has made all the difference. But it was but I it was God that just mm-hmm. tore me up. It tears me up. and crying now. Yeah. You know, like it was just that was maybe to me. Aside from how fantastic Anna looked when she got out of prison, <laughs> I think I was a straight man talking about this woman. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it was the yeah. two things that impressed me the most in yeah. the whole thing was how, because usually when you see the other women, they didn't look bad, but they did not look better. They did not. No, prison is Anna rough. Looked, prison is rough, but, and but people Anna, come out of prison looking like they've been in prison for a while. Anna came out looking like she had been at Lacoste <laughs> for sixteen years. <laughs> She had well, stopped fucking with that hair. Right, one yeah. thing. She, she had stopped really... going trying to make that mullet work. Yeah, totally. And let it grow out. She had beautiful hair. But beautiful she, hair. I mean, she just looked amazing. But but that scene with Cassandra and the, with uh, not Cassandra with Elizabeth and the niece. Yeah. was really astonishing. I and, I think that um, part of the appeal appeal is maybe not the right word, but part of what is hypnotic about documentaries like this and and even the forty eight hours and Dateline version is seeing who people are. In the crucible of something like this, yeah. who who you turn into, you know, I often say to people because I've had this experience. I haven't been involved in a big criminal case. I've never been falsely accused of a crime, or you know, um. But <laughs> you, I, was, you were guilty every time. <laughs> yeah, I was not guilty. I did not take that cookie. I did not have that beer. Um, you did not I, I did not wait on him. I so um, 
when you have a sick or dying loved one in the family, you find out who everybody else in the family is. You just do. I don't mean that to be dismissive or, or cruel, but when my father was sick and dying of a brain tumor, you saw who could show up. You saw who couldn't go. You saw who you would rather not go to the hospital because if they did go, they were ineffective and it was about them. It was going to be all about it, that. It yeah. reveals something about yourself. And I think we, the, aside from the, the- It's like traveling with somebody. The mystery. Yeah, exactly. You find out who they really are. You find out who they are. And I think moments like that of the reconciliation when you found out who, who she could be on that sofa, that she could forgive that child and, and still see- herself as the adult who had a responsibility to that child, even though she'd been accused of this horrible thing. And suffered mightily and had yeah. her life destroyed by it. Like, yeah. these were not, these were middle-aged women now. They're, they'd yeah. lost their youth. They were maybe 20 yeah. when they went to prison. Like, they were, you know, like, it had really, it was, a, it was a terrible miscarriage of justice. And then they did the thing which I was like, Really? Wait, what thing? I don't even know what you're going to talk about. I The reason that I watch, the thing that I love about true crime TV is closure. Oh, yeah. They, the promise that I accept, occasionally Dateline will do it, and I get pretty upset about it. It's mm-hmm. why you were, were leery of my phone call. Um, I, I like for it to go the whole route. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to know the whole story, and I want there to be a conclusion for the story. I don't want to see Dateline that they didn't catch the murderer or put somebody in jail for it. Or what. And that's I very just, rare. You see it more on 48 Hours than Dateline. Dateline usually... Well, they, they, I've only ever seen it once that I can recall on Dateline, and it just blew me out of the water well, there's they usually they never do it. There's usually... There's always a judgment, but it may not... It's not always the judgment you think is right. No, yeah. I don't always agree with the judgment, but there is some sort of sense of closure. And... There is a sense of closure here, but I thought it was really a weird choice mm-hmm. after showing Grandma eating a plate of um, arroz con pollo yeah. while she, you know, denied everything that the son said. Um, that, that they would, that they would, he hit my face that they on the would microphone. choose to not show. Their reaction to any of the court's rulings. To being completely exonerated. And ultimately that exonerated. Was and they were fucking with you as an audience member because the screen goes to black. And I thought, oh God, I'm immediately thinking, I'm going to have to go to Google and find out how this turned out. It, it, I think this documentary was actually released three years ago, or, or around 2016, 2017. So you're staring at a black screen and you're getting the title cards where it's like, oh fuck, this is over. And then the last of like three title cards is... And they were completely exonerated and are now considered innocent in the eyes of the state. And, and these like, were, they had gone back and found news footage from the late 80s, early yeah. 90s with women with the, that hair and those mm-hmm. shoulders and their right. shoulder pads and their jackets and whatever. Like they couldn't at least find, I don't know, a newspaper picture or. I think they might have had it and might have had the ability to be with them when they found out. I think it was a choice on the part of the filmmakers. And, and I, I don't disagree yeah, with it. I, it I thought it was a really cold ending. You had brought me on this whole journey and you're not going to show the reaction of these women to yeah. being fully exonerated. You're not going to let me see that. I yeah. was just I thought that was a bizarre choice. I thought it was a crap ending yeah. for a reasonably good um, documentary. It wasn't the most amazing piece. It was a little, there were moments like interviews in restaurants and stuff where it was like, just okay, be crazy. I don't some sound choices why, why and some things that, that were I, um, lighting was well, I, just... I, here on the table at the Dinner Party Show studio, we have 
what is not in the documentary, I'm going to call it a happily ever after photo. And we will post this on the Facebook page for the party people. But it is um, the San Antonio. That. We, that's four, our intention as we four years this. from now, we'll post this. And nag us if we don't. If you listen to this and you go to the Facebook page and it's not up, just yell at us. But it is the four ladies accepting a Glad Media Award in New York City in 2017 because the documentary won the Glad Media Award for Best Documentary yeah. that year. And they look absolutely... They've all caught up to Anna. <laughs> they've all, they've all like got they've some all gotten style some, going on. Yeah, they've got their glam squad on. Anna and um, Christy both have fabulous uh, tailored suits. and um, Elizabeth has uh, um, gone with the highlights, which was a great choice. Gorgeous highlights. Lots of great coming out cassandra is cassandra's really makeup is up. on point yeah so anyway not to make it all superficial and or about how the women look but it is a oh come on wonderful photo to yeah. and and the story with and if this had popped up on screen although that would not have been possible because the documentary was <laughs> they're winning the award for, well, the, documentary. for the documentary but yeah. something along those lines would have been fine like if it had just been a picture from the newspaper of them at the courthouse i don't care yeah or a news report or i would think why not just the actual footage of them finding out but i thought you were going to be upset that they didn't all go out into a field and just beat the shit out of the evil brother-in-law who caused the entire well, thing. Well, there is the sort of Mr. Potter aftermath of like, why is he not held accountable for... And for our listeners who don't get that reference, explain what you mean by Mr. Potter Mr. Aftermath. Potter is the criminal, is the bad guy in... Um, it's a Wonderful it's Life. A wonderful Spoiler life. alerts for It's a Wonderful Life. Right. If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life yet, too bad it was made like <laughs> 75 years ago when Christopher was a young man. Um, <laughs> um, I was not born yet. Yeah, no, neither of us were. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, watch it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, there was, and, and he does something terrible, and there is no actual punishment for him having done it. Like it moves past. He that releases gremlins into the town. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm confusing the movie because Gremlins has "It's a Wonderful Life" in it. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, there are no gremlins in "It's a Wonderful Life," <laughs> and there are no gremlins in uh, Southwest of San Antonio either. But Southwest of Salem. Salem. Um, there really is this disturbing, like. I, I feel it all the time. That sort of like I there, there needs to be. I don't know. Like I, I it concerns me that that there is not a higher value placed on proving your case. Mm -hmm. You know the beyond a shadow of a doubt kind of thing. It it gives me pause. I as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, I've been through like. I am probably a little bit more comfortable. I probably still wouldn't want to be alone with other people's children mm -mm. just because I just, I, that's an odd thing for me. It's left over from all those years. Mm -hmm. I think probably we're in a better place with that culturally, but it's still, you know, the sort of automatic kind of assumption. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think um, I, other what? abled people, people who are, are educationally challenged. Right. Um, probably also have the same kind of concern because, you know, they're, uh, well, he didn't know what he was doing and he did the bad thing. Right, um, yeah. Whereas with, you know, us, Their targets, the, we're, yeah. we're driven by some, our sex drives are well, somehow I, I, you know, out of control or I, something. I think, I, do you think this is crazy? And, and we may not have time to get into this. It'll be a four-hour podcast, but it'll be something we probably will come up again in other documentaries and specials. But it's like, why, why how did this conflation happen? Aside from pure bigotry, is it because when homosexuals were invisible in contemporary society, meaning, you know, post-turn of the century, 
that the only demonstrator of any kind of same-sex desire that a lot of people were going to meet was a molester, was a predator, who was a predator for another reason. They were a child molester. So that was the only gay people that you heard about doing gay things because they would be caught, they would be exposed, it would be talked about, and you didn't know. And I'm not trying to forgive bigots here, but I'm trying to get... I'm trying to pinpoint where the conflation took place because the other side of this is that you hear really distressing stories about gay men from, let's say, earlier eras, not that long ago, whose only sexual outlet as young people, sometimes in high school and even younger, was to go to rest stops and parks to meet other men. And when they were there, they would be fooling around with grown men. And you think, oh, that's the way gay used to be. Or it's like, no, because that young gay person had no outlet, they were wandering to where predators were who preyed upon them. You know, like, well, it seems really complicated to me. I think that, I think that one, there's the, the conflation of same sex with homosexuality. Like, being a, a child molester is, while you might molest people of same sex, right. that is not homosexuality. Many so, of them are indiscriminate. Many of them, if their children are young enough, they don't care about the gender. But that is yeah. not what they're attracted to. It is, yeah, yeah perhaps so. But, but I think that's the beginning of the conflation. I think the other side of it is because everything we did sexually mm-hmm. was made of sexual outlaws. It, the, it's like the kids going to... The, the the rest stop like yeah. I, I it is happening now in, as part of the Me Too movement like I everything was like the idea of being worried about whether or not people were in the right age brackets or whatever when I was younger mm-hmm. um, was kind of not a thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because doing what we were doing was already illegal even if we were both. Mm-hmm. of age. So me being younger, me being not quite of age yet was less of a consideration mm-hmm. because everything was illegal. You know what I mean? I like do it, know what you mean, the, yeah. When you're living in this sort of outlaw kind of milieu, mm-hmm. everything is... I don't think that had anything to do with this particular case. It didn't case. have anything to these do with were, but These it, were responsible, very mature, um, yeah. young adult women who were babysitting uh, their nieces, one of the women's nieces, for a week while the available parent was out of town and yeah. and then this made up charge but the reason that people were willing to believe it was they believed that what they were already doing was illegal yeah. is my point right they were already outlaws they were by virtue of the fact that they were with each other they were so it yeah. wasn't a big leap yeah. to then assume that they were oh also going to you know eat little children for it, dinner it never made any sense to me when i was first coming out to hear that gay people were thought of as child abusers and child molesters because almost every gay man I was meeting wanted to be manhandled by a plumber twice their age. Like, it was not... Like, like there were there were certain segments of the culture that valued younger men, legal men, but men in their 20s, twinks, as they were called. But the vast majority of, of the culture were not... They did, weren't cruising parks looking for little boys. They were looking for big, muscly guys that were going to turn them over their knee. And you know? we, in our, as we are now moving more into the mainstream, are going to have to come to terms with our own veneration of the sexual outlaw mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as a hero in gay culture, that's over too. Yeah. Like, no, if we want to a seat at the table, we're going to have to sit at the same table as everybody else. Separate but equal is out now, mm-hmm. and we're not outlaws. But 
these women were outlaws. They were made they were outlaws. They were branded they were, as outlaws, were, even as they were trying to live, even they, they were, were trying to raise children. Gay. Yeah, no, they it were was openly really... gay. That was already that was really their crime, and that's what they got put in jail for. They were seen as being potentially guilty of the other crimes because they were guilty of the crime of being gay. Yeah, openly gay. Um, to begin with. Yeah. That was really what got them convicted. Well, and I think next week's, uh, this is, I was going to say, this is brought up a lot for us personally as gay people. It yes. was a difficult watch for us. It was I think probably it's a, a difficult, difficult watch, watch for anybody. A difficult because it's watch about anyone, injustice. Yeah, yeah wrongly, yeah. wrongly accused is a difficult watch. I think next week is probably going to be a difficult watch too. It's a documentary called Bayou Blue. And it is about a serial killing spree in South Louisiana, which is where we are we are both from, essentially. We claim it as our home state, right. even though I was technically born somewhere else. All the messy stuff happened. We were both technically. We were. Not technically. Yeah. We were both actually born somewhere else. But, but yes. it is a spree, a killing it's spree that involves a lot of gay victims. So we will probably be talking about maybe some of these issues again next week. And um, We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Bayou Blue is the name of the documentary. It is available. Again, we recommend that you just type it into Google, and that will immediately bring up. I think there's a square that pops up on the right that shows you where it's available to stream or rent or buy. But Hulu um, and Prime, again, right? I don't know if it's on Hulu. Hulu can be very specific, but I think it's on Amazon Prime and iTunes, again, as with Southwest. I think it's also in Hulu, but okay. I'm not certain. Yeah. But um, we will obviously, you know— um, we will be talking about that. We will, as we have said frequently, make an attempt to talk about it in a way that explains it to you if you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, we recommend that because then you won't have anything spoiled because we're going to spoil everything because it's True Crime TV Club. And also let us know how that went. Like, yeah. This is our first time trying this, so... I think we did a pretty good job of sort of telling, the, allowing the story to unfold but also making it clear what had happened as we went along as we talked about all of our crazy stuff like... French and Saunders got I in there I was like, but, okay, we're going to go down a French and Saunders side road. That yeah. works for me. But like, that's the point. The point of this podcast for us, if you're familiar with The Dinner Party Show, which is available to stream and download at thedinnerpartyshow.com, it, it was a highly structured with a lot of pre-produced content and edited, and we had about five minutes to talk about everything. And I always felt like with certain subjects, we were being rushed through it. So we wanted to do something that was more about a looser and unstructured conversation, or as Eric's mother likes to say, you boys can just go on and on forever, forever. You just keep on talking. Did I get her accent right? No. No. Did I, I always do Texas, and she's South Carolina. She's Colfax, Louisiana. Oh, I'm sorry. She's Louisiana. Right. I'm, I, I always try to perpetually strip Eric of his uh, Louisiana heritage just because he did make a firm impression on the business community of South Carolina. He worked in advertising there for many years and was a theater critic and returned there as a gay author, according to the local paper. Gay author has book signing, was the headline when he went back in the 90s. <laughs> right, for anybody who was still in the dark about that. Absolutely, for anyone who's never heard your voice. Well? Well, all right, so Bayou Blue is up next Bayou Blue week. is up next. Um, I was... Uh, Southwest of Salem. That was Southwest of Salem. Uh, leave us your thoughts, your contributions on the Facebook page. We will have posts there if we and don't watch. have posts there. Become a part of uh, True Crime yeah. TV Club. Absolutely. Watch along with us and, and, and join the conversation that will continue on Facebook. Social media for us is really about Facebook. We, we're not doing the Twitter thing right now because Twitter is garbage and toxic and driving everyone crazy. It's crazy. Uh, and it's also too impermanent for yeah. me. I think Twitter is hard to find. It's like trying 
trying to catch a wave upon the sand. Absolutely. Maria. <laughs> so, um, but uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, but go to The Dinner Party Show as well. You can download and stream all our episodes and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you can review us. Do all the things you want to do. We are making every effort to make sure this podcast is available. But if you want to be in touch with us, go to the Facebook, go to the Facebook Dinner page. Party Show page. But we are making efforts to make sure the podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. So if there's a place where it's missing... Let us know. Just talk to us. Just we're lonely. Just talk to us. We just sit at home watching we're true so crime. Needy. We're so needy. Yeah, we're so needy. Anyway, until our next episode, I am Christopher. And I am Eric. And we are. You're supposed to do that part. I'm supposed to say your name? Yeah, that's what you did last week. No, you said Christopher, and we are Christopher and Eric. Oh, did I fuck it up? All right, let's do it again. One, two, three. And we are. Christopher. Christopher and Eric. <laughs> you did it wrong. <laughs> what do you want to do, Christopher? I think I've had too much caffeine. i got to go lie down and track to some belly breathing. Apparently now. so. Southwest of Salem got He's my Christopher. ass worked I'm Eric. This was Christopher and Eric. Now you're just doing all of it. Listen to us next week on another episode of, let's try it again, Christopher and Eric. Yay, we did it! <laughs> because I was saying my own name. All right, cut time. his mic. Cut <laughs> his mic. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>